In a world where innovative, immersive, and authentic learning reign supreme, anything that could be described as robotic can be a little off-putting, to say the least. It brings to mind the mentality of Disney's The Mandalorian, who, in early seasons, has good reason to mistrust droids, avoiding and even eliminating them at every turn. Yet, just like Din Djarin has to do some personal reprogramming to find a droid or two as tolerable, even useful entities, we are all working to come to a place where we can similarly embrace some of the practices detailed in the science of reading for the vocabulary instruction of older students. How do we reconcile our own wishes to avoid the droid while still integrating research-based practices when called to? It starts with a healthy degree of questioning and consideration. This is the way. Welcome back to the Grounded Learners Guild, the podcast that gets real about education, authentic leadership, and the transcendent power of being a part of a highly functioning team. Here are your very own guildmates and hosts, Casey Veach, Emily Coakland, and me, Jenny Libri. In our last episode, we grounded our conversation around the science of reading in the Star Wars universe. Our guest for the episode, Dr. Amy Stewart, pointed out that while it might seem like it, teaching reading isn't really a battle between two sides like it is with the Jedi and the Sith. It really is about what the research tells us and our ability as educators to adapt our teaching to employ it. It seems an elegant solution for primary learners as they navigate new vocabulary as emergent readers. But for secondary readers and teachers, it might be anything but. There's components that, to adolescents and teen learners, it might feel more awkward than C-3PO attempting a front handspring. While the instinct might be to avoid the more droid-like elements of vocabulary instruction altogether, there are going to be times where we might have to reframe that instinct and consider both intention and strategy. The goal might not be to fully avoid the droid. Dissecting a practice's base function and finding ways to adapt might just be the path through what seems like a tricky situation to us. And so with this episode, we're going to break down what this looks like in the secondary classroom and explore some ideas for how to employ research-based practices in ways that are still authentic to older learners when delivering specific vocabulary instruction. Okay, so I was really excited about this episode once I got thinking about The Mandalorian. Either of you guys watched The Mandalorian? We got through the first season. My husband and I then had our second child. <laughs> Never oh, yeah. found our way back to it, just with everything else. But the rest of it has been on my list. But Star Wars has been a childhood favorite of mine. Yes. So. Sadly, no. For me. Sadly, more so for Leo than it is for me. I think he would love for me to watch it with him. But I always fall asleep. Although Baby Yoda's cute. What's Baby Yoda's name? Grogu. Baby Grogu. I mean, how could you not know who he yeah. is? I mean, he's ubiquitous, but maybe this will be your bring in. Anyways, I really liked thinking about this topic because I think we have to lampshade the fact that some of the practices, particularly where vocab acquisition are concerned, feel very awkward and almost alien to us, right? Right. I mean, we had actually a conversation with the three of us as I was sharing with Emily and Jenny kind of the basic framework for what explicit vocabulary instruction should look like and sound like. 
and it got heated mm-hmm. and uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. And and I always, when I'm talking about this practice and strategy with people, I always say it may feel for secondary teachers outside of our comfort zone. It may feel like it's more of a juvenile or elementary thing, but it's because the practices work that we really need to think about and revamp how they might be used in the secondary classroom because they are evidence and research based. And we should probably say that it got heated, but it wasn't so bad. It wasn't like we were like yelling at each other. No, it was more so like if you think about just what we think of developmentally as wanting to respect, especially our adolescent learners as they are in their developmental process. Some of these strategies sometimes feel a little bit juvenile, like Casey mentioned. So that's where the heated came in is like really is this what the research is saying we really had to wrestle with that mm-hmm. yeah yeah the passion on all sides mm-hmm. here was very very evident and cool it was a cool conversation and we're excited to share pieces of that with our audience yeah and this is one of those moments where the grounding something in a metaphor really did help me so mm-hmm. thinking about the Mandalorian is kind of how I was able to start connecting to this so just to kind of break it down for any of our listeners who are less familiar like Jenny or who are kind of maybe just coming in thinking more about the reading aspect than the Star Wars aspect what I really connected here was the character of the Mandalorian Din Djarin. he really has a problem with droids they had you know in the early Clone Wars had killed his family and obviously he's got his baggage with with droids and with anything that presents robotically right Mm -hmm. so he really has a struggle with that and I think that you know to teachers struggling with some of these issues just like we did in our previous conversation some of it is of that it feels like you mentioned a little bit robotic a little bit juvenile a little bit not like our typical way of doing things right it's alien to us and What happens is there is a particular droid, which, by the way, trivia fact, uh, our little sweetie pie, maybe just mine, uh, Taika Waititi voices this (laughs) droid. Yes. (laughs) Yes. IG-11. It's initially a assassin droid that's sent to kill the adorable baby Yoda, baby Grogu. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And obviously the Mandalorian eliminates it. But then it is reprogrammed by one of his friends to become a nurse and protect droid that ends up helping him. It saves his life. It saves Grogu. So, like... When you consider the fact that the Mandalorian had to reconsider the base function of this droid. It had a base function to eliminate. The base function is now something different. I think that if we can break practices down to their base functions as well, we can find understanding and possible paths forward just like he does in the show. Can I sidebar us for a second? Is Taiko Watiti the same from... You see the vampire dude for what we do at the show? Yes, right. yes, yes, yes. So for those of us listening, and also they have uh, we have some episodes out from a few was it the summer where we did yeah what we do in the shadows with the, the vampires. Bonus and points for the Jenny. Summer, and also the summer before he <gasps> is yes! Blackbeard yes! in our flag means That's death, right. which new season new season of that just came out, y'all. So mm. that may appear on our pop culture winter wonderland if i can find the time to get get to our flags means death season two. Oh my gosh that'd be a joy so for all of us we're really gonna now dive in to some of the things that dr amy stewart mentioned in our last episode do either of you two remember those five basic components for how kids learn to read at no or even adults Right. They need to have mastery of these five different core skills when it comes to literacy. Phonemic awareness. Right. 
Yep. Mm-hmm. Were they in a special order too? Phonemic awareness was the first one. Mm-hmm. They are kind of in a mm-hmm. sequence, right? So phonemic awareness, having a, a realization of what letters kind of look like so that you can become more familiar with those. Yep. And then the phonics. Yep. Yep. Connecting those letter sounds with the letter symbols themselves. Mm-hmm. Fluency. I'm cheating because now I have the notes in front of me. Fluency. (laughs) (laughs) Yep. Fluency, the speed at which or the automaticity that how Mm -hmm. fast you are able to put words and phrases together. I'm going to give myself a slight pass here. I've been muting myself to cough because I'm actually kind (laughs) of sick right now. So listeners and Amy, I was listening. (laughs) I just am not feeling my best. (laughs) I got it. I got it. I got it vocabulary vocabulary yes (laughs) the ability to recognize and acquire new words as you see them and then last one i'm surviving here it's comprehension yo she's not gonna get them all (laughs) yeah at creating the meaning or creating the bigger picture and using the information that you have acquired when reading something and they occur in that order Because you need all of those foundational elements, the phonemic awareness, phonics, and fluency before you can really start to get a sense for vocabulary and comprehension. So they do kind of occur in that step stone, stepping stone kind of order. And when we had initially asked Amy to be a part of this episode, we had kind of put out the idea of wanting to really support secondary educators with the science of reading process. And Amy was very candid with us, and she's like, I can present the research, but my experience isn't with secondary. And I said, thankfully, all three of us can take care of that piece. So what does this look like at the secondary level? And I've had conversations in my current district with some teachers about, you know, why we have to understand and know about the science of reading and how kids learn to read. And probably the biggest reason right now at least, is due to the COVID-19 pandemic, right? We have kids coming up through our systems who missed out, now in the secondary grades, missed out on key foundational instructional years of K through three, where they really learn how to read. However, this was an even, this was a growing national issue before the pandemic hit, So according to a study done by the National Center of Educational Statistics, among 12th grade students of color, 38% of Latinx and 49% of African-American students scored below the basic level compared to 22% of white students on literacy assessments. And so this was a national problem even before the pandemic. And so that's one of the reasons why we feel as GLG, it's important to bring this awareness to other secondary teachers and provide some strategies that they can use with their own students. Truly, so many teachers have tried to make the move for more equitable instruction. And this is a real opportunity to walk the walk on that. It does feel weird, but we've got to do it. And the stats you just read off, Casey, are really why. Right. And if we're hoping that our students can access the content that we're trying to teach, especially when secondary is so content heavy, if we are not acknowledging that perhaps there is some gaps within their vocabulary understanding, especially of higher tier vocabulary, academic vocabulary, 
it's imperative that we are being intentional in how we are structuring our lessons for students to access that learning because they can't even get to the content if they can't really read it. (laughs) Right. If they can't engage with it, period. And in regards to tonight's topic, today's topic, specific vocabulary, I'm going to just name and notice here that when I think about the way I taught in my own classroom vocabulary as an English teacher, I did not teach vocabulary. I assigned vocabulary to students. And it was sort of this, we pre- we previewed it, read through the words on Monday. They had a couple of assignments due Wednesday, Thursday, and then the test was on Friday and it was done. We barely engaged with the words themselves in class. And they were completely out of context. They were out of this bright orange Sadler Oxford book Mm. that really wasn't doing my kids any favors. And so according to another study done by the, I believe it's the National Reading Panel. I could be wrong on the study, but the number I know is correct. That because of how impactful explicit vocabulary instruction can be, Researchers found that only 1.4% of instructional time is actually spent on teaching kids how to understand vocabulary. And another study that said that percentage of time may even be less. So even though it is vital for students to achieve those higher levels of performance on Bloom's Taxonomy or on Webb's DOK, you need that vocabulary to do that higher order thinking. We're not spending our instructional time on it, which ultimately does a disservice to our kids because we're not setting them up for success in those higher levels, even in the secondary secondary classrooms. Now, I'm sure that my own vocabulary instruction came from much older science, but I I am proud to say that we were at least doing a a week of vocabulary instruction in language arts. Every other week, we would flip from vocabulary to grammar, and we Mm -hmm. did teach it explicitly. We taught Greek and Latin stems, Mm -hmm. not just words themselves, but the stems so that they could look at the stem and apply it to many different words that would have it. And we continued to aggregate vocabulary that contained those stems that they could use academically, but most of the practice was spent in working through the words, drawing them, breaking them down, talking about the different stems in combination with each other, having the kids generate lists of words that use the stems. And this was this was quite some time ago. This was from probably like 2004 through 2007. So I'm sure there were things that I I would love to have, like be able to go back in time and integrate from what we learned today from that, but at least there was some explicit vocabulary instruction happening. And that actually, Emily, is word learning strategies, Mm -hmm. right? That's morphemic analysis, looking at a word's morphemes or the prefixes, roots, and suffixes can help a student when they're faced with a new word to at least predict with some percentage of accuracy what that word means so breaking it down into those roots prefixes affixes and suffixes Mm -hmm. would you all like to do a star wars themed example with me which i was totally (laughs) geeking out about so one of the main characters in the star wars franchises the main six movies is obi-wan kenobi uh he came up in our mmm last (laughs) time if anybody remembers (laughs) Exactly. Um, Played by Sir Alec Guinness and Ewan McGregor. 
So did you realize that that obi or ab uh, prefix has a specific meaning? Yeah, I'm assuming so. <laughs> um, it did. I didn't realize it. It means against or facing. Well, right. You- and so if we were doing stem stem breakdown of ab, I would be bringing in obfuscate and obstruct other words that contain that. Exactly. And he is the one, one of the main figures that is against the Empire Ooh. and is a figure for the force of good in Star Wars, which is totally awesome. And I love that. Love so I love um, that you were actually doing one of those core science-based reading practices, evidence-based practices with your kids of looking at those morphemes. Thanks. It's awesome. I was thinking about, in my experience in the world language classroom, you guys talked a little bit about from ELA lens or English land lens. But when you think of second language acquisition, it's going to be different. But a lot of the teaching that I had to do was a lot more explicit for that very reason. And so there was a lot of TPRS, Mm -hmm. which is total physical response that we would do. Repetition is super important. You know, Casey, we we can even get into one of the the pieces that you have here about cognates and what that can do for our EL learners. Mm -hmm. Um, But a lot of these strategies, before we even get into the cognates, a lot of these strategies that we're finding more and more is not just isolated for the language-heavy classrooms. I think that that's something as secondary educators we really should think a little bit more about, that it's easier to say, oh, that's for the English class, or oh, that's for the world language class. But really, this is this is a team effort. We really need to be thinking yep. about it from what are the, the type of academic vocabulary they need for science, or they need for social studies, or that they need in mathematics. There's so many different pieces of vocabulary that are really necessary to accessing that learning for all content areas. And oftentimes mm-hmm. we get the, well, is that my job? Or do we have time for it? And it's like, you have to make it your job. You have to make time for yeah. it. Yeah, that's one of the reasons this morphemic analysis strategy is one of the first things I brought Mm -hmm. up, because in our math courses and our science courses, Mm -hmm. this is the perfect place for those teachers to grab this, you know, by the horns and tackle it, because those are the words that have those Greek and Latin roots, prefixes and suffixes. And those are the hardest courses that have a lot of academic vocabulary. So it's a great place for those teachers to feel like they can be involved if they're looking at keywords. How can we break it up into parts? What are the parts within it? And how can I break those down for my students so that they can use them later? Like take a word like hydro or a a Mm -hmm. prefix like hydro. You're going to see that in other places throughout a science course. So it's very simple for you to bring in that kind of awareness to students so they could use that skill when they're faced with a different word. Not just science either. Hello, driver's ed, hydroplaning. Come on. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. Everyone in their courses teaches vocabulary. So this is a great equalizer space for everybody. And it's super tempting for, especially even in Spanish, we would back in the day give vocabulary lists that were upwards of 30 to 45 words but really that's way Mm -hmm. too much as well you want to scale it back you need from what I've heard from some of some of my colleagues that are that are in this sphere especially as they coach teachers through different tiers of academic vocabulary 10 is like the rule of thumb or Mm -hmm. fewer at a time if you're giving up Mm -hmm. if you're giving these lists that you think well Everything's important. It's like, what can we really narrow down and what can we think about is really the 
going to give the most bang for our buck? What are the ones, if hydro is it, and hydro you're going to see across so many different units, those are the ones you're going to want to hit home first and foremost. So you want to be judicious in the decisions you make on those vocabulary terms as well. Exactly. Being highly selective on what words you teach explicitly is really going to help make that stick because you need multiple exposures. Sometimes students, I can't remember if we shared this in our last episode with Amy, but on average, a student needs about 12 exposures to a word before it actually starts to stick. The word itself, yes, but also its meaning. For any of our ELs or our striving readers, they may need to hear and experience and speak that word upwards of 40 times before that word sticks. And you can't do that if you have a list every week of 30 words. It's just not going to happen. So really, when it comes down to the non-negotiables for what teaching strategies and word learning strategies we need to use, um, in 2000, the National Reading Panel determined these two main findings to help our brains map sounds and letters and words to students' brains. The first, like I just said, is those multiple exposures. Students need to hear them in multiple contexts, see them in multiple definitions so they can really get um, a wide understanding of what that word means. And then the last is they need to not only hear you as the teacher speak the word, but they need to speak it themselves. They need to write it themselves. And those all count as those exposures. So if nothing else from this episode, secondary teachers, those are the things we need to start bringing into our instructional practices if we're going to leverage some of the brain research behind the science of reading. Right. And, And I do feel like, especially when we've been kind of talking a little bit about ELA and language classes, we talk about the, you know, modalities of reading, writing, speaking, listening a lot as being a part of the skills that we're trying to have students master in those disciplines. But like you mentioned earlier, they do come up in other disciplines as well. And not only that, I think it's really important that we note that this is kind of where the awkward part comes in. Mm-hmm. Because While we think we're doing it by having students do different activities that involve speaking and listening, we're not necessarily utilizing speaking and listening for vocabulary instruction. So here we go, guys. (laughs) Yep, yep. Time to break down that vase function there, kids. (laughs) Ready to inspect the droid. Yep. (laughs) So I'm going to go through what the specific explicit vocabulary instruction routine sounds like. And we, as the three of us, will kind of unpack where our hiccup was as a group and talk through some of those ways you could still leverage it with all students, not just striving students, but with those who are meeting or exceeding standards. Let the reprogramming begin. (laughs) Yeah. Before I do that, I also want to lampshade. We're not talking about decoding here. So some of the kids in our classes may not even have the ability to unpack or decode what a word sounds like or should actually mean. And for us secondary teachers, we can breathe a little bit of a sigh in that that decoding work for many of those high need students really should be a part of a tier two or a tier three intervention. Maybe at the sixth grade to early seventh grade level, you might go into there, that realm of decoding. 
But that's why so many of us, we really just want to focus on the vocab in this episode because we can't necessarily stop the core curriculum to unpack like what's a blend, what's a digraph in reading. We have other things that our students are going to be accountable for. So just wanted to lampshade that fact as well. Super important. Yep. Breathe a sigh. We're not going to teach those <laughs> in secondary unless a student is in that intervention period. All right. We're ready to feel uncomfortable and talk about how we can avoid Just the rip droid. rip off the bayonets. Get weird. <laughs> yep. So when I am providing specific word instruction, the first thing I do is I project or I show the word. Because again, I'm trying to increase the number of spoken visuals and heard exposures that my students have to a word. So I'm going to show the word first. That could be on a projector. It could be on a whiteboard, whatever. I then have students rate their level of current understanding of that word. With my middle school students, I recently did this by doing a hand to heart and had the kids signal to me with fingers. One, I am not sure what this word means at all. A two is I may know one or maybe two definitions of the word. And number three is I know all of these definitions and they have to show me what their current level of understanding is. This way I can kind of formatively see, is this a word that I really need to explicitly teach? kids. So starting there. The next step is for me to actually define this vocabulary word, the definition that I want all my kids to know, all my students to use. Okay. Now, wh- ding, 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 ding. You said, are we ding, ding, ding or bleep? bleep? <laughs> oh, Whatever. Go for it. Yeah. Sorry. <laughs> you said to ring in when something starts to be one of those things that might have yeah. felt a little awkward. This is all of a sudden very teacher led. Mm-hmm. So I think we need to notice and name that. But this is why it's explicit. I am making sure that every single student knows the definition that I need them to know. Okay. But yes, it does. And we could also because instead of ding, ding, ding. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) So we're droid noises. Because here's what here's what here's what current practice is. M current practice in the secondary lens, and I'll say this: this was in my space as well. We hand out a Freyer model, we hand out a word map, and tell the kids, go look up the word. They're not using those multiple modality exposure practices of hearing it, speaking it, and seeing it when I just give them the definition. Got it. Mm -hmm. It also might stick in their head if they're learning a definition that I don't really want them to learn in this particular context. Oh, multi-definition words mm -hmm. and the like like that. Yeah. And those are the words, those multi-definition ones are, are the ones that we want to do this strategy for. Because they could be used in multiple situations and across domains. You're figuring out which one matches your discipline and only exactly. working with that one specifically. And and I get that too. And I think the other thing we may want to make sure that, you know, our secondary teachers understand here too is that that formative piece at the beginning is what leads you to this. If the kids already know what it means, you're not going to be having this teacher-led right. experience if they don't. You're going to bring them through it using the science to help them mm-hmm. grasp onto it, right? And even during that rating piece, I'll acknowledge that when I was listening to the person who trained me on these practices describe, like I would want my number threes 
to share out what they think the word means. The problem with that is other kids who hear that, if it's not the right definition, may get that that unclear or that fuzzy definition stuck in their heads. And that's not what we want. I want to do that explicit instruction. Got you. So again, when we think about putting this base function forward in our mind, we are trying to explicitly make sure that all of the students, and again, you said all students mm-hmm. in the class are able to understand, define, and use the the word within the context of your specific discipline and its usage. Exactly. So I also will want to provide student-friendly definitions. So to go through this part, I'm going to actually use a specific word yes. that ties in to our Star Wars example. Of Let's, I love when of you do course. this. Let's say I want all my kids to understand the multiple ways you can use the term rebellion. Mm-hmm. In Star Wars, there's a rebellion. We all have, There's multiple ways for students to use that word. According to Oxford Google Dictionary, that word is defined as an act of violent or open resistance to an established government or ruler. In our school systems, we are actually seeing an increase in the number, at least around us where we live, an increase in the number of EL students. What I have just done with that definition is provided them even more challenging words that may not help them Mm -hmm. understand what that word rebellion means. So your first hack is actually utilizing, it's an online resource, and you all are going to laugh at me when I hear give you the suggestion of a dictionary. <laughs> um, but if you search online to the Longman Dictionary, it has already simplified definitions that can be a support for any student who is learning the language for the first time. So words that stuck out in the Oxford and Google Dictionary, violent, open, resistance, and established. Like, is an EL going to understand what that, those words mean? The Longman definition is an organized attempt to change the government or leader of a country using violence. So far simpler language is used that might be more familiar to an English learner. So definitely check out the Longman Dictionary if you're looking for pre-made student-friendly definitions. Plus, it's super easy. Gotta love that the one that has long in it has the shorter (laughs) words, right? (laughs) I mean, the other great thing about this particular website dictionary is that it provides multiple usages for the word at the same time. There's sample sentences already there. So as you're designing your explicit vocab instruction, you can use this as a great tool. I know I've used it to design some teaching experiences. (laughs) And speaking from somebody who has learned a second language herself, I have been there in the position where I have used some, and this this dates me, some dictionaries to help me learn another language that are very dense definitions and make the the access to understanding just so complicated. And just the amount of time that's needed to understand and look up other words is just not, it's not going to work for us in our classroom. So I love that that's a tip in shortening it for us because it's not really about adding more vocabulary to their plate, getting them into the language that we need to have them in the moment. Right. So you provide it, then what? You provide the definition. 
Next, you find multiple accessible explanations and examples. So these could be synonyms, and these may not even apply to the context you are studying the word. So let's say we're talking about rebellion as it relates to the... Um, like American independence, <laughs> you know, like one could say this is a rebellion. We rebelled against the British, right? Okay. So I may not even bring in sentences that tie to this particular topic. I may want to use different examples. So some of the examples that I have for us, if I were teaching this word that are Star Wars themed is number one, the rebellion achieved its greatest victory when it successfully destroyed Emperor Palpatine's crown jewel, the Death Star. The rebels worked together to plan the attack on the Death Star after it destroyed Alderaan. And my children rebel whenever I try to get them to watch Star Wars with me because they would rather watch Bluey. <laughs> Notice, and we can put these on our website if you're interested in, but in these sentences, I used multiple forms of the vocab word. Again, increasing exposure, yes, but also showing this word can be used as a noun. It could be used as a verb, and there's multiple forms of it. And Casey, what would you say in what you have learned through your training? Is that written down? Is that projected up? What it that is projected as so that's well another bleep boop boop seeing boop, it. Boop. Yep. <laughs> so this is hard. This is a hard one for us to swallow too because it's like it's just very clinical, just mm -hmm. very clinical. Yep. And this is where the explicitness comes in. And I haven't even I don't think gotten to the really awkward part yet. <laughs> but there's more. So, <laughs> but there's more. So the most uncomfortable beep 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 boop portion of this is. I want, after I have read the sentence to kids, I will give the direction, all right, now read the word with me as we read this sentence together. So we would all three of us, if we were doing this for real, we would recite that sentence together. The rebellion achieved its greatest victory when it successfully destroyed Emperor Palpatine's crown jewel, the Death Star. Yikes. This is where we got into a fight. No, we didn't. This is where things got we didn't get into a fight. <laughs> because, again, the goal is hearing, seeing, and speaking the word. But I think we found up a fair compromise for some of us in the secondary world. One of the ways you can do this is through choral reciting, which is what I just described. What's another idea, my secondary friends? You could pair them up and have them talk talk to each other or do it with a partner. Mm -hmm. Then they have that less whole group. I mean, Emily, are your twelfth graders gonna do that? No. <laughs> <laughs> so that's where we're struggling with with is we see what the research is saying and so how do we also help with engagement because we talk so much about engagement we talk so much about the de developmentally appropriate nature of agency that our adolescent students need and that's where the research doesn't lie what it does for the brain but how do we also reconcile the the engagement pieces and then the the awkwardness mm -hmm, that it would yeah. be for an 18 year old to feel like they are doing this mm -hmm. but that said I mean, I do think that that developmental piece of putting that that social component into it is maybe a that's why that becomes 
a more powerful workaround because there are things that kids will not do in a group that they would would do with one person. And vice versa, because I've actually seen this in a lesson recently where we did do it partner and I still had some students not doing it, but they would engage with it in the choral Mm -hmm. sphere because there were 30 others who were doing it at the same time. So you know your kids best, but the idea is that they are using and speaking the word. I speak it all the time when I'm teaching, but I need the kids to say it as well. Hey, this might be a super dumb question, but when you read the whole sentence, do they just read the vocabulary word or the entire sentence, Corley? I would say, you know your kids. Sometimes it's easier to do just the word and you motion to them when they speak the word or they read the whole sentence. It's also more efficient if you do one whole sentence reading together and then the later ones you motion to them and they just speak the word itself. I feel like they disappear into their hoodies no matter what. So (laughs) we would have to figure out something else. Well, and speaking of knowing your kids, that's the other thing. Honestly, I I can't help but think of they don't even feel like kids once you get into the high school level, especially in the upper Mm -hmm. the upperclassmen grades. So knowing your kids is knowing your students. And sometimes when they're getting into that like adolescent slash young adult lens, telling them the why behind it might also be another helpful strategy to employ. Like this isn't because it like like lampshade it it's gonna feel awkward but here's yeah. why we're doing it this is what the brain science says this is what's gonna help you access this this you can even connect it to what it means for them in in the success of their you know, summative assessments or whatever that might be mm-hmm. so um giving them the purpose yeah. behind it the why would help and we right. do have a lot of kids that are you know are getting into sat or ap tests or you know mm-hmm. even dual credit type situations and i think that's when you can really get them jenny i think that's a really good point that not just being explicit about the vocabulary instruction itself but why you're doing it let them in on your teaching and why you have to do it that way and then right. maybe it will be a little less weird easier like, to stomach your brain needs this <laughs> Yeah. And treat young adults like young adults, even if the instruction itself doesn't feel like you are by explaining it, you bring them back to that young adult place. And that is even what I did with the sixth graders that I was working with recently. I said, this may feel a little bit like what you would do in elementary, but it's how we're going to map it to your brains. So there's ways of articulating that why in very simple and then also brain-based research for kids. For students, sorry, I'm so used to saying kids now that I'm back in middle school. (laughs) And then the next phase of this is engage in deep processing. So the deep processing should, again, incorporate as much as possible that written and spoken component as well. So the first example is using a sentence frame. And I think this is a perfect way of engaging in partnered conversation. However, you want to use the explicit or give the explicit direction that you need to say the entire frame, including the vocab word, when you write your response and then share your response with a partner. So for our rebellion example, the sentence frame would be blank is not someone who would be responsible for a rebellion because blank. And the kids have to then write their sentences, take a moment to review them, and then share them with a peer 
you could also add an extension to increase the exposure afterwards as you're floating around listening to the kids' sentences, starring one of them and asking one of the kids to share the sentence that they wrote to, again, increase that exposure. Another deep processing protocol that you can use is, again, using kind of a, a sentence or a prompt who would be more likely to start a rebellion and giving the students lists of individuals and then having them complete the sentence Ewoks would be responsible for a rebellion because <laughs> they were C-3PO, <laughs> which adds to and makes a really cool conversation, right? Mm-hmm. Like they have to justify their thinking, use the definition in crafting their reasoning. The Mandalorian would be. The Sarlacc would be more likely to have a rebellion. (laughs) So you want to include in these choice lists some that are up for negotiation because you want really the kids to test their thinking. Yeah. Once we get into this critical thinking piece, this is I'm feeling a little bit more at home now. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. It is almost like you you do have to either be overt or just kind of grit your teeth and get through Mm -hmm. the explicit part of it. And then the higher order thinking starts to come into play. Yep. And and after you do these first initial phases, now is when any of my little A peeps out there who do the Freyer model or do a word map or a word cluster, this is now when you give them that graphic organizer to say, capture what you remember, what you recall of our conversation and go through it with them. Because now you have gone through the explicit learning. The last step that you take is you continuously revisit that word over time because you need that retrieval to have that additional exposures that they need to cement that word. Another reason why you don't want lists of 45 words long. (laughs) (laughs) This entire strategy that I've described for you, I have done with kids. It took me 15 minutes. So if you are you want to be highly selective in what words you do this with. So those key critical verbs are really important to do this with, like analyze, mm-hmm. describe, explain. Maybe not a domain specific word like hydroponic. Yeah. You wouldn't want to do this with, but perhaps looking at that hydro um, prefix could be helpful. I actually was talking to some teachers who were talking about students not even recognizing vocabulary words from prompts. Mm -hmm. Like, I think that that's really key, what you just said about the verbs. So, like, yeah, shout that. Well, and it goes back to even what you were talking about, Casey, with if we want our students to be at a higher DOK level of learning, those are the words that they may not even know what they mean when we get into analyze and interpret. And really, what does that mean? Do they know how to use that or how to think that way? And a lot Mm -hmm. of our our skills-based tests are looking for those things, but if they don't even know what it means, then they don't even know how to provide the evidence that they can do that skill because they don't know what it is. Mm -hmm. If you're looking for a resource on some of those key academic vocabulary terms, I believe, I think it's, I don't remember the first name of the researcher, but I think they're from Brigham Young. They have the Coxhead Academic Word List don't say that phrase to 12th graders or 9th graders. Oh, good Lord, no. 
I'm I'm not gonna lie. I'm sitting here shaking my head back and forth so I don't start cracking up. But thanks for throwing it out there for me. Yeah, <laughs> of course. But it has a list of like the. 200 most frequently used in academia words or on standardized test words those are the ones that you may want to teach explicitly so that if there is an assessment kids know exactly what they're meant to and do. even from a yeah. curriculum design lens as i work in the district office with all of the disciplines k-12 in our unit plans we have now been putting in what are the academic higher mm-hmm. tiered vocabulary words that we really want to from a systems level and a scales level hey if i'm in this unit plan and this is for social studies in this particular unit we're breaking it down for it these are the words that we can help not only our el learners but all learners focus on within this unit so that it does simplify is probably not the best word but it, it is a way for us to systematically think about it and not have to like Yes, it's it's great to be able to pull and know your kids as well, but it's also a way to spread the wealth of some of those words you're talking about, Casey, mm-hmm. where they are. If we know that they're covered here, we can find more room for other words there. Right. So if I'm teaching Analyze in Lit LA, math maybe will touch on what it means to analyze a representation, but they're not doing explicitly, it explicitly right. like yep. I would have done in yep. ELA. Exactly. Right. So one of my other favorite processing routines for vocabulary is the concept picture study where you give students three or four pictures and have them kind of discuss what that vocabulary word may mean or which picture most correctly identifies or relates to that vocabulary word that you're talking about and why. So we'll post a post an example on our website if you check it out of what this could look like for the word coordinate. But having a picture of a wedding, having a picture of a bar graph, having a picture of dancers, having a picture of um, airplanes and the kids, the learners would unpack how that definition would apply to that visual. And that's another paired conversation to help them really grapple with that word. So that's another favorite of mine. Yeah, I like those ones where there's those opportunities to do the the speaking and listening and use the word and use examples and really apply. This is, again, once you get past the little bit of the bleep, bloop bleep, like, <laughs> you can really see how it could be helpful for Your kids. Your droid is starting to become more warm to you. Yes, yes. It sounds more like Taika Waititi. <laughs> Yay. <laughs> And then the last caveat, the thing we have not talked about, as an ELE teacher, one of the things that I would always try to do is help remind my students to look at context clues when it comes to understanding what a new word that they're reading might actually mean. Let's reflect a little bit on directing kids to context clues as the primary means of understanding what a word means because honestly based on the research there isn't much direct impact that we see when students use context clues because they vary from context to context if that Mm -hmm. makes any sense so this is why we want to emphasize as instructors more of the word learning or the explicit vocabulary instruction because that is within our control whereas context is not. So for example, if we look at a sentence, again, Star Wars based, yeah. like the moon, gibbous and red, correction, 
the moons, because I think there are multiple moons on Tatooine. Two. <laughs> <laughs> the moons, gibbous and red, rose in the sky, casting an eerie glow over the sand planet of Tatooine. What would you think gibbous meant based on your context clues? Big? I have no idea. My, when I looked at it, gibbous to me meant like ominous or scary based on the context of eerie glow. Um, That's not what it means. It means like a partial shape. That's what gibbous means, right? So we can't rely on context clues in this context, whereas having explicit instruction over that word might have given us more of a fighting chance when we were faced with it. A lot of the teaching of context clues involves using sentences that that use the context to give it away. Whereas when you when you authentically come into contact with a word more often than not, it's just the word is itself. There's not a separate part of the sentence describing what that word means in other words. And I really have to ask Casey why you left out. You have to say this caveat. You named it and you didn't. Please. Let our listeners know what you named the caveat. Oh. <laughs> I thought it was so good, especially given the giggles we had in our last episode with Dr. Amy Stewart. I I called context clues the sarlacc of vocabulary <laughs> instruction. So good. It's this just it's this giant hole in the ground that we kind of yeah look up the picture and yeah. and that's all you yes. need. If you don't know what the Sarlacc because is. It, it could leave you, lead you down a black hole. Of More than a black hole. <laughs> Butthole of nothingness. Yeah. Jenny just wants us to to feel bad for, for not malorting the Sarlacc. <laughs> I have found other people after that conversation that agree with me. <laughs> so thanks for sticking with us, everybody, for that explicit vocabulary instruction. Looking forward to unpacking some of the key components of comprehension in the part Because trilogies. Right. Yep. You have to do a trilogy with Star Wars. Yes. Yes. Okay. So if we are going to transition to a game, I do think because we've had a lot of strategies in this one. We only have time, I would say, for one round of MMM. So again, quick smash through MMM. We're talking milk, margarita, malort, milk for things we we want more of (laughs) and would happily embrace, margarita for things that are okay in occasional content, and malort for things that we think need to vanish off the planet, like Jenny feels about the Sarlacc. <laughs> so, and if you don't know what we're laughing at, go, go back. back and listen to it's our last episode. <laughs> Just fast forward to the end. <laughs> yeah, Dr. Amy Stewart did good showing in that as yeah, well. So thank you, Amy, for being a good sport. All right, so in light of all our bleep, bleep, bloop, bleeps, uh, we are going to be Milk, Margarita, and Malort deciding about three very well-known droids in the series. So our candidates today are R2-D2, C-3PO, and BB-8 from the from the sequel. <sighs> this was hard. When I learned we were making this pivot to the droids, <laughs> I let out an expletive. <laughs> um, because this is so difficult. But I think I'm going to... I'll go first. So I think for me, the Malort will have to be the whiny voice that is C-3PO. He is just... He adds a little bit of a, a reality thing to everything, but his voice is just so annoying. 
I would have to say my margarita is BB-8. He's so delightful and cute, but he's super fast. And I never could afford the cool little droid version, like the real life programmable one that I wanted. So I did, however, growing up, had my own R2-D2 phone. So I am going to uh, milk R2-D2. <laughs> R2-D2 is so cute. So Casey, you and I were a fairly close match, but not completely. We both put poor C-3PO off into Malort land. Unfortunately, it wasn't just because he's annoying. I actually think that there are enough characters that that speak without the bleep bloop bleeps that I kind of like the novelty of how mm-hmm. the droids speak that way yeah. and the human characters completely understand them. I, I think Chewbacca has some of the same appeal in that yes. way. Whereas C-3PO just continues to like almost like harp on everybody mm-hmm. in mm-hmm. plain English and it's almost like more annoying than if he was just like frantically bleep bleeping about whatever he's upset about <laughs> I guess. So like I also in this episode. I also find him kind of annoying. Yeah. Um Yet, so I feel like we should just be bleep bleep bleeping when we don't like something, just like we have done for the last yes. hour or so. So he's in the Malort bin. I would margarita R2-D2. I think he is a lot of fun and, and sassy, but he makes bad decisions sometimes. And he's always getting himself into trouble and broken. <laughs> so I feel like I couldn't count on R2-D2, whereas BB-8 tends to, he's going to get the milk because he, he tends to do pretty well mm-hmm. and mean pretty well. I think he's kind of adorable, too. So, like, I actually think that that was a nice addition to the series. BB-8 mm-hmm. is a really cute droid and does good work. So, that's mine. Um, you and I are matchy-matchy. I agree with you. Ah, BB-8. Like, I, and I also love the... Uh, my my son's favorite color is orange. So, I just love the aesthetic yeah. of BB-8. Aww. He's also, like you said, delightful, so Casey. He's cute. He's somebody... If really I were to have, like, zooming around my house, I wouldn't mind having him around so much. Um, so he's the milk R2-D2 again just charming and cute and you can have him once in a while but yeah he he's a little bit of a clunker (laughs) so that's why he gets he gets the mid the mid round there and then finally I agree with you guys C-3PO he means well you know you can't hate on him all that much but he is kind of annoying and I don't need if I again I'm, I'm purely making the decision on who would be I would rather have zooming around my house and he's just again he's the clunkiest and he's the one that's just big and in the way and talking too much. So sorry. Sorry, C-3PO. You have been malorted by all three of us. Yeah. Sorry. <laughs> sorry to that actor and C-3PO and everything having to do with it. All right. So transitioning to a taste of what's to come in our next episode. As we mentioned earlier, this is going to be a trilogy, just like all good Star Wars offerings tend to be. We're going to be looking into part three of the science of reading. And this one is going to move into that final area of focus along the line, which is comprehension. So we're looking forward to talking Star Wars and geeking out a little more and learning more about how we work with that aspect of the science of reading. Please stick around. And that's a wrap on today's episode. It's always so fun to be behind the mics talking to you, our GLG fam. Thanks for choosing to come around to engage with our guild's content as we passionately continue to advocate for adult learners with transparent conversations about the world of education, impactful leadership, and the power of high-functioning teams. The Grounded Learners Guild is a production of Grounded Learning, LLC. If you'd like to connect, the power of the PLN continues. 
As always, you can find us on our website, thegroundedlearnersguild.com. While you are there, check out our past episodes, our socials, and learn how you can bring the GLG flavor to your next professional learning event. And yep, you know, your feedback is everything. Feedback is that powerful tool that allows us to be responsive to the topics that matter to you most. If you haven't yet already or are finding us for the first time, leave us a review and hit that subscribe button. You can find us wherever you stream. Thanks as always for tuning in to be a part of the Grounded Learners Guild. That's it for us, Casey, Emily, and me, Jenny, in today's episode. See you all at the next Guild meeting. And don't forget, in the meantime, do your best to stay grounded.